This podcast is brought to you by Quick Left, an award-winning custom software consultancy that crafts outstanding web and mobile applications. Find more great content like this podcast at quickleft.com. Quick Left's Chief Product Officer, Joe Stump, talks about the business of coding in this series of podcasts. Twice monthly, we will feature a new podcast with different industry experts that explore not only the challenges that face the technical side of business, but the business side of technology. Each all-star guest shares their own experience on the technical and non-technical aspects of running a company and imparts tips, tools, and advice for the programmer and business person. Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you again for joining us for another episode of The Business of Coding. I am joined this week by... Jason Evenish, who formerly ran product at Kiss Metrics. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. So, if you could uh, give our listeners a, just a quick kind of background, how did you end up at Kiss running product? Sure. Um, so, I the thirty second version is I was an electrical engineer that realized I wasn't really excited to be an engineer, uh, which eventually led me to get into internet startups in Boston. Uh, I started my career at a company called 140, which was the app store for Twitter. I learned a lot about lean startups, especially uh, when you build something people don't want to pay for. Um, and uh, it turns out Heaton Shaw was one of my mentors when I was at that company. And so uh, a few months after that that company got Acco hired, I had the opportunity to uh, join Kiss Metrics. And he wanted someone who was really customer driven and big on customer development. So he gave me the opportunity. Awesome. Heaton's been a been a guest on this uh, episode previously, and we talked about kind of different types of entrepreneurs and a couple other interesting topics. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so the reason uh, that I brought Jason on the show is Jason and I have been uh, kind of Twitter pals for a while talking about product development. And Jason's been one of the few people out there, uh, there are a few others that, that I felt really had, you know, this really great approach that was very metrics driven. And one of the things that um, had always bothered me as a software developer was you'd get these marching orders from some somebody and they'd be like, hey, we want you to build X, Y, and Z. And you're like, why? Who chose these things? How did they get chosen? Why that order? Why not uh, YZX instead or whatever? And um, I wanted to, to explore a little bit of that today. So Jason, if you could give us a really high level overview of kind of what you like to do is your approach. So you have, I would assume, let's let's say we have a product, thousands of customers, uh, mm-hmm. the majority of them are paying customers. Let's just say it's a B2B SaaS product. We, we probably both have worked on such things. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you've got a certain amount of engineering resource. You've got a quarter of, of empty calendar space on your product uh, calendar. Mm-hmm. Where do you start, you know, what, what is the process? Where do you start to kind of decide what that next XYZ is? Um, so I think it starts uh, with kind of a high-level discussion of where you're at in your business. So um, there are two sides of that coin. One is technical, which I'll get to in a minute, and the other one is the business side, uh, which I think as a product manager is really the most important thing you're bringing to the table. And so what I'll end up doing is looking at KPIs for the company. If you're a SaaS business, usually the two things that matter are onboarding, as in how many people are converting from checking out our website to doing a trial to becoming a paying customer, or churn, as in people sign up but then either never become a paying customer after the trial ends, or they're only there for a short period of time and they quit your product. Those are generally the two anchor points that you're always fighting against one or the other to improve it. And so usually it starts by looking at one of those KPIs. Um, and that will help inform them thinking about, well, how do we improve that KPI or the other one? And that will kind of you'll go deeper down the well. On the other side, on the technical side, um, there's a guy in the Valley named Dan Olson. He was a VP of product at um, Friendster. And so he has something called uh, Olson's Hierarchy of Needs, which is like Maslow's only for product. And I love it because it talks about some of those technical trade-offs that will totally bite you if you ignore them. So you know, uh, the way his hierarchy starts is the bottom, bottommost level is, is the site up when I want to use it? And then is it fast enough? Because speed is really a feature, especially in Web 2.0. Um, does the functionality I need work? Does the functionality meet the needs that I have? And then the last one is how easy it is to use it. And so I always think not just against the KPIs, but also on the technical side, I'm always wanting to communicate with my engineers to find out like, hey, where are we at on that hierarchy? Are there things we need to deal with there? Because for me, I always want to make sure we uh, deal with the things that might cripple the business before we start doing anything that's a, uh, an intelligent bet or a nice to have. Yeah, we've actually, um, 
At Sprintly, we've noticed an almost direct correlation between the number of bugs that get that we actually put into Sprintly, like the frequency and kind of the trend line, and churn. Like a yeah. very clear relationship. Like if we have a boned release where you know there's a lot of you know, yeah. you know maybe there's a speed regression or something like that, um, and it's really led to uh, uh, you know again me being the product guy that's you know that used to be an engineer, I- I'm like I don't. You, everything needs to be tested, like yeah. you know, no more pull requests that don't have test coverage. And um, there, so I think there are times when you know, it the things that we they you know that people do in engineering have a massive impact on the business. And one of the unfortunate things that I've realized since moving into product is sometimes that's very obfuscated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very abstract to the developer. Um, and one of the things that we've taken to doing at QuickLeft is we have a KPI spreadsheet and we uh, there's three columns for each month. One is uh, uh, projected, like what, we've, what we think we're going to do for that KPI. The other one is actual and then obviously a delta. And the entire company gets to see that so that they can see and start noticing those kinds of trends. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you've kind of once you've kind of gotten an idea, like okay, let's let's start with with churn because I feel like um, churn is churn is I tell people churn is your is your north star in SaaS. It is yes, it is so indicative of so many things. And just just to back up for a sec, mm-hmm. um, a KPI for those that are listening is a key performance indicator. It's a metric uh, that you pay attention to that. Uh, is is indicative of of the health of your company and your product. So think of it like your heart rate or your BMI or something like that. Those are body KPIs, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, churn is 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 just as Jason said is is a measure of how many people are basically leaving the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have two hundred people paying for your product at the first of the month, and um, you know uh, twenty of them leave during that month, your churn for the month is twenty percent. Or ten percent. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So, let's say uh, let's say you've decided that churn is is has you know inched up in a way that you know you're you're a little worried about. Um, so you've you've decided that which KPI you're going to work on for that next quarter, um, and you know you've you've seen an increase. Let's say churn's gone from three uh, percent uh, to four percent in the last forty-five to sixty days, and you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. Where do you where do you start after that? What's the next step of kind of deciding? Because even at that point, you really don't even know what's wrong. You don't know mm-hmm. which direction to go. Um, you're not. You have no idea. You know why churn is is heading in the wrong direction. So what's what's sure. the next step for you? Uh, so uh, first of all, you know, as a disclaimer, Kissmetrics was an analytics company. Uh, so I was a little spoiled there because uh, Kissmetrics in particular, uh, it has people driven analytics. So all behaviors uh, in your product are associated with an individual. So I use that heavily. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I've learned since I've done some consulting projects with other companies, they don't always have this as, a, as an access. But at Kissmetrics, I was actually able to say, this customer churned, let me go take a look at that exact person and see what's up. Um, and so that ended up being a huge tool for us. So I started out like with churn, it would be, let's go look at all the people that quit. Uh, are there any common patterns? Are there features that none of them use? Are there features that all of them use that maybe they were getting frustrated by? Like you mentioned with the... Um, uh, the problem with uh, uh, with bugs in your in your releases uh, affecting churn. Um, the other thing is that we did that was like hugely powerful that I encourage you to do is um, if you're a SaaS product, when you churn, you should the cancel button should pop up a survey. And so what we did at Kissmetrics was you push the cancel button, a window pops up and says, "We're sorry to see you go. We'd really like to learn what went wrong. Can you please tell us?" And it would lead to a multiple choice box of the reasons we knew people might quit. Um, and then an empty box that said, want to rage on us or whatever, like say anything you want here. Yep. And every single one of those would go to cancellations at Kissmetrics, which was an email address that then went to um, me and a whole bunch of other people on the team so we could all see it. Now, the important trick to know about that is if you get that, if you get that email and it's associated with that customer, you know who it is, you have basically 24 hours to send them a note if you want to get them on the phone. Yep. So I found that like if I email them after 24 hours, 0% response rate. If I emailed them really within like 6 to 12 hours, I'd get about 10 to 15% to hop on the phone with me. So especially if you have like 1,000 customers um, on your platform, you know, if your churn rate's like 5% or something, that's actually a decent number of people that might talk to you. And so what I loved to do then was is I would hop on the phone with them and try and find out, hey, what went wrong? What were you using us when you were happy and what changed? 
And that could be a whole lot of different reasons, but you'll start to kind of drill and be like, oh, you know, we need to make some performance improvements. Or, wow, they're really frustrated about this feature that was super important to them. We should invest in making it better and more reliable. And we had both of those happen at KISS. Yeah, one of the so it, it's this is uh, um, the the very next thing that everyone must do if they're running a SaaS product is yeah. gotta have an exit survey. Yeah, like it's it's like if uh, if I had to come up with like a few um, you know major rules, uh, you know the exit survey is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found really interesting when I first started really auditing and getting those exit surveys, and we've been doing those from you know since very early on. Um, is is there's really kind of three or four main buckets that those fall into. There, you don't have a feature that they wanted. It didn't work the way that they expected. Uh, you know, those are kind of the two big buckets. And then, and then you end up with all these other weird things like bug reports, like like legit bug reports, right? Or mm-hmm. um, uh, my other favorite one is there's uh, the first time I did an audit of our exit surveys, I found like 7% of people that were responding uh, said that they were leaving because we didn't have a feature that we had. It was like a major feature that we had. And that was the other thing that I found really interesting uh, is, if, you know, you talked about this earlier, why onboarding is so important. And sometimes mm-hmm. those those problems will pop up in your exit surveys. Um, and we've taken to uh, doing heavy editing of our, or heavy, heavy auditing of our exit surveys where we actually manually review and try to bucket each response into Mm -hmm. some sort of theme like, oh, these people are complaining about, I don't know, mobile or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been shocking to me uh, when we, when it, you know, when you focus like the first time around that we really did this, uh, we found about, I don't know, 20, 22% of people were, they had an issue around our UI and uh, we fixed that and Mm -hmm. churn went down 24%. Like I was blown away at how closely the numbers matched up. And I don't know if you've seen that as well. When you start focusing in and start doing cohort analysis on kind of this customer development mm-hmm. where it's like, oh shit, these things actually work together. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is that like the, the stuff that we found was often uh, related to just like bad experiences we didn't know were happening. So like there was a feature we iterated on at Kissmetrics called Live, which is basically a live stream of all your activity of your users. And um, we thought that there was an uptick in usage of the feature. We're like, sweet, more people are discovering it. It must be great. And it turns out it was crashing and all the extra usage was people refreshing the page. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, we had had an issue uh, with... Uh, there was a bug that got pushed and because it was in our new user flow, like we would have never seen it. Um, and I saw this massive drop off in a funnel mm-hmm. and I was like, uh, why are, what? We were converting, this funnel was converting at like, I don't know, whatever, 10 or 15%. Now it's converting yeah. at like four mm-hmm. um, and found, found a bug that way. So it's, it's surprising to me uh, how, but I guess, I mean, even for my own behavior, a lot of people, I don't even report a lot of bugs that I of mm-hmm. course say I will and stuff, but um Okay, so so you end up talking with a bunch of customers. That starts to zero in on kind of what the major theme is. Like, um, uh, let's say there's some, you know, major new feature or uh, something that is missing. Like maybe a competitor has something that that your product doesn't have, and or something mm-hmm. like that. So you found this major new area where you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure we need to do something in this giant ball field. I don't really know what. Yep. What's, what's the next step? How do you start zeroing in from there? Um, ideally, at that point, we're going to have some type of hypothesis on what we think we need to build or need to be. And I'll go and try and validate that, which means I'll try and identify some customers in our existing user base I can talk to and maybe even some that aren't customers or are actually leads right now for our sales team for some of our bigger leads. Um, and that will help us then zero in on like, hey, is that actually a problem? So that's where I'll do my uh, conventional customer development interviews where I'm like, who are you and what do you do and what, how does you know, analytics fit into your marketing workflow and then really try to validate like why is something important. And then once I really get the idea of like how this is a problem in their day-to-day, that's when I feel like, okay, I've talked to like a dozen people and most of them articulate the problem in this way. Now I'm ready to go distill that into something that we can actually go build. Gotcha. Do you do, we do a lot of that as well and, and it's mm-hmm. really critically important, to, I found, to understand 
uh, in particular, because usually, particularly with like something like Kissmetrics or Sprintly, these are both mm-hmm. we're we're both effectively analytics products. And mm-hmm. is and one of the things I found really critical is figuring out who they relay the data to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you found this. I would guess, but like with 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 Sprintly, what we found is a lot of people pull data from us via API. They dump it into a CSV. They do their own analytics on it, and then yes. they report that to a boss. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, what are the questions you're trying to answer here? And why? Like, it's it's uh it's a really important to kind of get at that root use case because I I'm still convinced that 100% of SaaS companies are competing against email and Excel. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like 98% of uh, MVPs that you're competing against are uh, like Google spreadsheets right now, I swear. Yep. Um, but we've definitely seen, uh, I've definitely seen where you can essentially have people uh, who need things that basically, like Kiss Metrics is like, I'm a marketer and I want to look good to my superior. Small yep. company that may be the CEO, uh, larger company, it's the VP of marketing. And oftentimes, like, that means I need to get this report into a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and they're on PCs, so they can't just do control, uh, command shift four and take a screenshot. And so, like, uh, we were talking before, uh, before the show started, you know, how, like, PDF and CSV exports are actually hugely important for those people. Yeah, it was, uh, I finally added CSV export in a real hacky way to our API and, I know we'll eventually have the full blown thing, and it's just uh, it makes the it makes the teeny tiny developer still living inside of me very sad. <laughs> um, but it, but it is the truth. Do you when you're when you're going into that process of um, you know you validate it, you kind of you've got a really clear understanding of what the problem is. You've got a really clear understanding of kind of who the constituent is and roughly how they'd probably like to see it solved. Um, <laughs> One of the things that that we've kind of gotten into the habit of doing is is going actually a um, one step further, where we actually get on the phone after we've had those discussions and follow up with them and be like, "Here's four wireframes. Pick one. Have you done any kind of that? And how do you kind of how do you approach socializing? Um, you know, once you have that figured out, how do you go about confirming that your implementation and the path that you're on with your implementation is actually mapped back correctly do you do any kind of confirmation with them or yeah i mean i think that's actually one of the hardest parts because like you don't want people to be like try to be product designers and give you like button feedback and location feedback and stuff you really want to say like does this solve your problem so like basically what i try to do is like before we do like i don't like to send people high fidelity mock-ups because i worry that they'll look at the wrong things like ooh, that's shiny but it's like no 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 i I want to see if you can actually do what you need to be able to do. And so what we ended up settling on is often like like one step above hand-drawn mock-ups, like absolutely no detail. Try to show them and say, hey, does this look like um, you said you wanted to solve X problem. Does this look like what you had in mind? And, and when it came to analytics, I think a lot of it was like, no, we don't want feedback on the interface. We want feedback on the outcome. Yeah. And so we want to be able to say, look, you said you want to be able to get this number. Is it is giving it you in this form acceptable? And that's what we'd look for. And then otherwise, what we love to do, and I found a huge luxury at KISS, was that we went in every feature before we launched it would have a little checkbox in the admin where I could manually turn it on for people. And so when we would have a build that was like half finished and maybe it wasn't quite perfect yet and they were polishing the design and stuff – that's when I would go turn it on manually for like five to ten customers who I knew were either like mega early adopters and would try anything or I had talked to specifically about this feature and they were really excited to get their hands on it. And either way, those people would be like anxious to jump in and tell us what they thought. But they could actually use it with their data, which is a lot easier than trying to get them to project like, hey, we've got this really cool design and you can kind of see what it would do. But it doesn't have your real data, so I don't know if it actually answers your question. Yeah, those those feature flags are uh, that's something we're getting ready to to implement into into Sprintly, and I can't wait. Yeah. Um, it'll be really uh, it'll be really nice um, for those that are listening. A great tool to use if you're if you're not a Photoshop whiz and want to throw some wireframes together and put in front of customers is Balsamic. That's a great app for that. And then another one is uh, Mockingbird. Both great apps for. Um, they have a bunch of canned Crayola looking kind of UIs that you can throw together real quick and be like, how's this look? And, uh, it, it works well. And I do agree, Jason, you got to show them, uh, those wireframes and keep it focused on kind of, you know, solving the problem and less about how great of a pixel polisher your designer is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm convinced that people are like raccoons and they're just get attracted to shiny objects and totally flitter off into space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the hardest thing I found was like we have really we. I guess I got to use past tense now, but we there are some great talented designers at Kissmetrics, and they can make things gorgeous. And so often, even I would look at stuff the first time, and I'd be like, "All right, I have to step back, think about this for a second, and ask myself, okay, I wrote down in my thesis that I handed off to engineering design what the problems we were trying to solve and what the outcomes we were we wanted were. Does this gorgeous design actually address that, or is it gorgeous but not quite right? And often, you'd have to do a little back and forth, and that's why. Um, I tried to be really disciplined on like really trying to convey to the team what we were building towards so that if we got a little off track, we could pull ourselves back on track before we launched something. Gotcha. So at this point, you've, you've, you've got things validated with, with customers. You've gone through mm-hmm. exit survey data. You've mapped that back to your KPIs. How many, um, uh, you know, generally speaking, kind of how many hours do you think you spend talking with customers and how many thousands of responses do you think you get on surveys before you are in a position to where you can even sit down and write that doc that you're going to hand over to engineering? Uh, it's really case by case. So I, I think of it like, um, I'm kind of a Jack of all trades, uh, craftsman when it comes to products. So I look at say like, what is the problem or what is the thing we're trying to do right now? What's the right tool for it? So sometimes that's a survey um, sometimes like at Kiss Metrics, we had a feedback box at the bottom of every page. And, um, so we would get feedback like 50 emails a week because of that from all the different pages. And so sometimes there was just so much feedback just in that, that I could have a lot to get started on. And so I'd pull data from that. Sometimes there wasn't as much, so that wouldn't be a tool. We had Kiss Insights obviously installed, which is now Qualaroo, um, installed on our site. So sometimes we'd pop up stuff like that. And other times we'd email with SurveyMonkey. So like we we're always pulling different tools depending on the circumstances, I guess. But I, I guess the thing was is like once I felt like I had a confident hypothesis, I could specifically go validate in interviews of like 10 to 12 targeted people. Um, that's when I knew I'd be ready for like the next stage. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so at, at Sprintly, we, for this last release, just to give uh, the engineers out there an idea of how much kind of homework we did before we handed anything over or even talked about what we were going to build or how we were going to build it, Um we had about a thousand survey responses that we audited, um, probably twice that in support queue responses that we audited, oh, wow. uh, a few hundred in, in various ideas in our ideas forums. We use uh, user voice for that. Okay. And probably 50 hours of customer interviews. Can I ask you a question? Um, do you find, do you get value out of the user voice stuff? Um, yeah, we do. Uh, as far as like a straight support tool, it's, it's really nice. Um, Mm -hmm. particularly the, the admin UI area, it's basically a domain specific email client, which I think they did really well on the, the, the problem that I found with the ideas forum is, is more of a problem of, of survivorship bias. Um, and for those listening, survivorship bias is basically when you, uh, when you basically attach success metrics and you only pay attention to the things that succeeded uh, when you're trying to fix something that failed, there's a really great story in World War II about this uh, British uh, army engineer guy that uh, the Brits were getting shot down left and right when they first started sending bombers over Germany. And uh, the, the military did this long study about figuring out where all the bullet holes were on the airplanes that made it back, and it didn't reduce the shoot-down rate. Uh, and one very smart uh, engineer uh, suggested, well, hey, how about we just like reverse the the reinforcement on this? Because so, clearly these planes can survive where they're getting shot because they're making it back. And we can't look at where the bullet holes are on the ones that didn't make it back because they didn't make it back. And the, so they reversed the armor to where the places like weren't reinforced and where the bullet holes weren't. And the shot down rate went like way down. <laughs> um, so the problem that I find with the ideas forum is people that are already high engaged enough with your product to go into the ideas forum. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, very few people will even submit a bug much less. So if they're not complaining about a broken product, it's a really high rung of users that are like, I am so fired up about this product that I'm going to go and find the support forums. And then I'm going to post my idea. And it's the similar type people that go in and then vote on those things. And so there's a couple things that have popped up. Like our, our number one idea forever has been cross product views. That's a feature that took pivotal like eight years to add. And I know why, because 
it never ever shows up in our exit surveys. People don't leave mm. because of that. So it's that's the 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 problem that I always kind of that's the balancing act. Like we've been so focused on churn for so long that it's like. I'm sorry, nobody's leaving because of that. So I'm not going to like do that thing that you want me to do, even though it's very clear in user voice that you want me to do it. So have you have you ever used user voice on another product? Like as in like you're a customer and you've looked at their user voice forum because you were going to add something or you engage with it? Uh, no, I haven't really ran across them in the wild. So, okay, so so I personally like I'm not a fan of the the user voices of the world because I think it promotes groupthink and because I've observed my own behavior on those where like. I came to user voice to specifically like write something that was bugging me, but then you get popped up and there's like 37 other ideas that have already hit that are already there. They're voted up like 600 times and you're like, well, if I post something new, no one's ever going to see it. And oh, by the way, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. I'll vote that up and, and that too. And like pretty soon you're voting up a bunch of features that like may not actually be a core problem for you. And on top of that, you lose out on actually hearing what I was actually thinking because now I don't even bother posting it. Yeah, I totally, I can totally understand that. Um, and I don't know, it's uh, the whole kind of user support community forums as just a whole software market, in my opinion, yeah. is like that whole area needs a bunch of love. Um, I don't know, somebody will crack that nugget eventually. Probably yeah. won't be me. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me is I like when I talk to anyone in my co- across a company, or to customers, I don't want to hear future requests, I want to hear problems. And it's amazing whenever I shifted the language at Kissmetrics from feature requests boiling up from sales, because we can't close if we don't get this feature. Or marketing saying, we totally need this feature to keep up with the competition. Or support being like, they're asking for this feature. When you start saying like, no, 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 no. I don't care about features. Tell me the problem that you're solving. What is the problem the customer has? It is amazing how suddenly support, marketing, and sales are all asking for the same thing. Or they can't even clearly articulate the problem that's solved, and you can get away with not building it. Yeah, this is this is something that um, that is that is really important when you're going after products. Is I'm always you're always pushing on like, what's the problem? Focus less on the solution and focus yes. more on the problem because mm-hmm. that I mean, look at Craigslist. Clearly, the solution doesn't really matter. Somebody can put out a <laughs> turd, and but as long as it solves the problem, people are going to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that a lot. And like, you'll see this even in customers where they'll say, you know, you have one customer that's like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm leaving because I don't have an, and- you don't have an Android app. And then another customer is like, hey, you don't have an iOS app. And then a third one says, hey, I can't use the website on my mobile device. They're all saying they want mobile support. That's mm-hmm. the problem, right? Is they can't use the damn site on, the, on a mobile, on a mobile uh, device of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is that is really important. But you know what's funny? Um, it reminds me. So Kissmetrics, we built a, uh, a Google Analytics app actually called My Analytics as kind of experiment foray into analytics on mobile. And part of what inspired that actually was customers asking us for a combination of things. Some people wanted to view some of their analytics on mobile. Some people wanted better uh, analytics in their email inbox. And it turns out that there was a lot of overlap between those two. And so it was really interesting to understand what they wanted to view specifically on mobile and how that translated. Because essentially our MVP was actually um, a set of emails that you could view on your mobile phone uh, in your email to say like, hey, you know, eventually we'll put this in an app. But like, what do you think of it this way? Because you can still access it in a mobile view. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's always the analytics portion I find is always difficult. Like how do you give people the right data at the right time in the right way to where they're not going to have to download a CSV file and put it into Excel? (laughs) Oh yeah, totally. And I mean, that's the thing is like the key to mobile is always about like fewer jobs to be done because the screen is so much smaller. So it's like, why do people want to do it on mobile? What specifically do they want to do on mobile? Cause I bet they don't want to write new stories in Sprintly uh, or whatever you guys call them. Um, they don't want to do those on mobile, but they probably want to view some things and like understanding what that is can probably help like break that into something bite sized either that you can make like a responsive web design for them as an MVP or something like that. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned recently, um, you know, I, I, we were talking before the show got started and, and uh, we were talking about how project and, and product managers kind of sit in the, uh, in the gap between the development culture and the business culture. And it's kind of, <laughs> you know, I look at as, as like, it's this connective tissue that's trying as hard as it can to keep those two together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of like 
a lot of thought, a lot of work, a lot of homework, a lot of analysis goes into before we hand the engineers, you know, hey, this is what we're working on next. Like, it's not thumb in the air kind of stuff. We actually do listen to customers. We do things that most engineers don't like doing, which is picking up a phone and talking to a human. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we, we actually, you know, that stuff doesn't come out of thin air. And, mm-hmm. uh, there, you know, the other side of this equation is business stakeholders. And yeah. the, the, the interesting thing that I found about uh, working in product with, with the stakeholders is that you have a whole different set of problems where, um, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they're using poor business drivers. Like I actually worked with a company recently that uh, their product queue was dictated by contracts that sales had signed and sales and sales of course was their metric was like, how many contracts did you sign last quarter? And they would sign the contract and not talk to product or engineering and be like, okay, we need this by this date. Right. And, uh, and so I'd like to understand a little bit about like, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see business stakeholders falling into? Like, what are the, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, that is a very clear example where <laughs> the business yeah. has gotten off the rails and, you know, the, the, the tails wagging the dog on that for sure. But what are, what are, what do you look at? Like your job as a product, you know, manager, what's your job when it comes to the business? You know, I'm, I'm CEO and like, what are some common problems that you've seen the stakeholders fall into and, and how do you, what kind of work do you think is important to do as a product, uh, product manager to kind of help the stakeholders move in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it starts with just like the KPIs we talked with earlier. Um, I think the entire company needs to agree on what those drivers are so that you can work towards them. Um, once you have those, those drivers of those KPIs, then it's about how does the vision of where the company is going long term, which is usually set by the founders, the CEOs, the leaders of the team, how does that align with those KPIs and what we're actually hearing boots on the ground? Um, because often, you know, uh, what's working in the pitch meetings with your like investors or what's happening at the conferences isn't always in alignment with what is a, you know, junior marketing analyst at a, you know, Fortune 5000 company actually doing in their day to day. And so, um, you know, making sure that you start with the alignment of those KPIs and then actually thinking about what the real customer story and problems are, I think it's a huge challenge. And that's something you have to communicate and like almost like, you kind of have to get them to agree to that before you go out and do any work because otherwise all your work may not go anywhere good because you have because they never agreed to the fact that that was actually how they want to be driven. Yeah, I've you know the 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 vision and KPI alignment is is an interesting thing because yeah. one of the things that I've struggled with at Sprintly um is that I want to take my customers on this journey and but I want them to be there right now. And I think what I've realized yeah. is that product, sometimes they're not ready, like yeah. your customers, right? They're not ready for your vision. Like if you'd shown somebody six or seven years ago what Facebook is now, we would have been mm-hmm. like, forget that. We don't want anything yeah. to do with that. I mean, they freaked out over newsfeed. Facebook users full on revolted when they launched yeah. that thing, right? And now it's like, that is what Facebook is effectively. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been interesting, I think, as a product person to understand that, you know, you have to have this very incremental approach to implementing your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas as the, the inner CEO in me is like, I want all this right now. What are you talking about? But even if we were to deliver all of that right now, our customers would be like, this is what is it? What I don't what? How do I how do I do my stuff with this thing? Yeah, well, I think it's a lot. It's it's just like a big story in your project management tool. Like, what do you have to do? You have to break it up into smaller pieces. And so I think one of the challenges of a product manager interfacing with like a leader is saying like, okay, we have this big vision, but how, what do you think the steps are in between? You know, you don't just take one step and you're at the summit of Everest. It's like, well, actually, we need to get the first base camp and then second second camp. How wait? How are we even going to get the first camp? What do we need to get there? What's got to be in our bags? How many how many Sherpas do we need? Like, what's going to go wrong? How many oxygen tanks? Like. Once you start, like the devil's in the details, once you start breaking it down, it starts getting easier to both understand like, wow, all right, our customers are going to take a big leap for us to get there, um, but also understand all the steps that have to come in between. Um, so I, I think that like having those discussions, like Heat and I, uh, there's a tea called Pu'er, it's this Indian fermented tea, and like literally that was like one of my favorite things I used to do at Kiss was we'd throw a pot at Pu'er on, and him and I would just jam on like, he'd ask me what I'm hearing from customers currently, and I would be asking him about like what he's seen in long-term vision stuff, and like you know, it 
it, it's definitely a little bit of alchemy, but it's definitely like, okay, on the one side, I'm pulling him into reality of like what's going on right now today. And he's pulling me out of that to say, where do we really need to march towards? Because that may tweak a little bit how we, you know, create the next solution so that it's like, okay, how do we link it? So it starts feeling, feeling like we're on a path, but you know, how do we ground that long-term vision in like what we have available to us today? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a, it's, I'm a big fan of natural tensions and that is definitely one of those uh, thing that there's constant tension uh, between implementation and uh, end game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of kind of working with the, the people that are, you know, that are really supposed to be owning the long-term vision of the company. Um, mm-hmm. Has there been a time, can you think of, or in, in a story that you can pull up of where uh, let's say the customer's, immediate needs were completely out of line with the vision and how you were able to kind of pull that CEO or pull that, you know, founder and say, look, man, this is one part where the vision's just totally off the rails. So, uh, kiss metrics started out as, um, basically being kind of analytics for all. And while I was there, what we had to do was really kind of, uh, take some harsh medicine and say, who are we really good for? Because depending on the kind of business, our churn rate was very different and our support requests and how they use the product was all very different. And so we actually spent a lot of time really getting to know our customers and realizing what we had to say no to. So if you look at Kissmetrics today, it is all about SaaS and e-commerce companies. And that's because those are the people that had a much larger uh, lifetime value as a customer and actually, I could tell you the stories of exactly how they use the product and then it's like fitting like a glove. Meanwhile, though, you have consumer web products and like ad-driven businesses were a nightmare for us. We didn't have the kinds of reports they needed. Frankly, they needed someone to tell them what numbers mattered a lot versus knowing that, hey, I need to set up this funnel. And so we actually ended up having a bunch of those kinds of customers like, you know, banging on the door saying, hey, like we want to use you, but we need you to do X, Y, and Z. And we had to make the conscious decision that wow, we're not going to serve that customer anymore. We're going to tell sales to no longer spend time on them, to tell them to go use these other products. We're going to tell support to downplay. And when they ask for those things, say, sorry, we're focused on these kind of customers that don't have that problem. And we're just not going to build features that fit to those people. Yeah, we had we went through almost a, a very similar uh, um, want, you know, it's, it's this kind of come to Jesus moment. Yeah, you know, where uh, very early on we wanted to be kind of this lightweight, uh, nice, agile tool, and um, what I really wanted to build was productivity analytics, more or less, like who's doing what, where, you know, like uh, basically monitoring what people do as they do it, and trying to mm-hmm. figure out where the problems lie, and visualizing that kind of stuff. And yeah, what we realized very early on was that at the very low, at the very small kind of low end, small team, that that market was just so fragmented that there was, there was no winning. That it was just like everybody had, you know, I mean, think about just, just a simple Kanban board, right? Like if you go and look at like Kanban boards, like software, there's probably, I would be shocked if there's less than 200 paid SaaS implementation products that will be a, that will give you a Kanban board for a team of five. Mm-hmm. And but what we noticed was, oh well, actually, large companies only get to choose from like three products: version one, Rally, and Jira, and they hate mm-hmm. all of them. God, like, Jira patently Ooh. hate all of them. And I was like, and and so we had these large customers that were like, oh my god, it's arrived! Like the thing that's going to save us from Rally has finally arrived. Uh, mm-hmm. Crap, I can't use this with a team of thirty. And yeah. we had this really awkward post when we launched 1.0. That was uh, almost, oh man, two, almost two years ago now. And it was it was very clear what market segment we had chosen. And that was to go further up market and work mm-hmm. on, you know, with larger customers. And we had a ton of small people, like small teams and like lo- what I call lone wolves, just like one dude coding in his basement. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you've ruined Sprintly. Like, why can't you bring back like the, you know, this other stuff that we knew was causing so much turn on the other end. And it was like, Hey man, there's this thing called Trello. It's not bad. GitHub issues <laughs> will work probably for you. I mean, you were probably using sticky notes beforehand, like whatever, man, like they all work. Um, yeah. but we yeah. were pretty honest with a lot of them too. We were like, we'll like, I told people who like contact us, 
we're losing money on every person like you. Like, and we're trying to be a business. Like, I'm really sorry, but like, we can't afford you as a customer. We, we did a lot of, um, it was really interesting. We did a lot of, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite put it that way, but we yeah. did, we did say, you know, like, uh, we had to pick a horse. We couldn't be this, a lightweight thing and be a nice robust tool for bigger companies. Mm-hmm. We've made a conscious decision to focus on, you know, larger, larger teams, uh, larger companies. Mm-hmm. If you're still looking for something, you should check out X, Y, and Z, Trello, GitHub issues, and something else. And th- the response was interesting because we got a lot of people that were like, oh, thanks, hadn't heard of Trello, looks great. And then we had a lot of people that were like, oh, awesome, uh, totally understand. I can't wait until my team's big enough so we can use Sprintly. Nice. <laughs> so it, it worked out. It was, it's been, you know, it's obviously been going well since then, but it, it was... I remember that time so clearly because I was like, God, do I really want to compete against Jira and Rally? Like, do I really want to build that kind of product? Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, we've been kind of finding a slightly different path through. I still think that there's a pretty good gap between, because if you look at our market, it's kind of low end, tiny team tools. There's mm-hmm. really only one tool I think that works well for medium sized teams, which is pivotal tracker. And I think us yep. as well, we have, we have a lot of teams of 50 to hundred that work fine on us. Um, yeah. but large corporate wide installs, there's only, there's still three players, but it's, so it's weird. So you end up companies, I would say most companies are churning out of pivotal tracker and sprintly probably around between hundred and 200 employees, but yeah. you put Jira in front of them and they're like, Oh my God, like, did I really, do, do I really need the M1 Abrams tank to take out this? <laughs> like, you know, just because I went from hunting rabbits to hunting deer, like I don't need the M1 Abrams tank. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, a good way of putting it. Yeah, so we're still kind of working our way uh, towards yeah. that. But Well, the other thing is, too, that I love that I just want to hit on real quick is, like, you know, when you think about the intersection of product and product marketing, it is amazing when you come to a website and they describe you. Like, you're like, oh, my God, that's me. I I need this. I'm going to sign up. Versus, like, those sites where you're like, I still don't know what you do I might like, I guess I'll sign up, but I'm not sure why I'm signing up. And those people like churn out really fast because they get confused and lost versus the person who's like, oh my God, that's my, I have that problem. I have that problem. I have that problem. I'm totally going to use you. There's a, the best, so we did a bunch of AB testing on like the, you know, the intro slogan. And and one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I've seen on SaaS is, is, uh, use a question that people that fit into your like prime cohort will absolutely say yes to. So yeah. for, you know, for kiss, it would be something like, um, do you know what, what page your customers are on right now? Or would yeah. you like to know what page your customers are viewing the most? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I want to know that right now. Um, ours, uh, the best one that, that, uh, worked for us when we did all this AB testing, it was, uh, um, don't ask, don't, don't ask how it's going. Watch how it's going in real time. And then people were like, oh, I don't have to have a meeting. I don't have to go mm-hmm. in and ask somebody like it was, uh, it's worked really well for us. But, um, so what are, you know, thinking about kind of that product marketing and, and marketing in general, um, what are some things where, you know, we are, you know, we've, we've actually recently had this conversation at Sprintly and I'd love to get your, your take on it where, mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes the customers don't know what they want. And sometimes, sometimes you, you, that visionary person does have a really interesting idea. And, and of course, because they don't even, it's one of those things where they, they couldn't even possibly know that they necessarily want it. You can't even really start to like, like, you know, bring that all together. Are there times when you think it is appropriate to say, you know what, none of the data actually supports this. But it's, it's one of those things that we, that marketing is like, we can really run with this. Like, this is mm-hmm. something that we can use for positioning. This is something that really differentiates us from customers. Yep. Uh, maybe the salespeople look at it and they're like, oh man, what, you know, a new shiny bobble to sell. Yeah. Do, do you think that there are times when it's appropriate to throw that Hail Mary? And if so, what are the characteristics that you look for in a good Hail Mary? Uh, I'd say it's two things. Uh, one is, uh, uh, one is experiments and one is personas. So uh, we'll talk about experiments first. I think that when you have a crazy left field idea, the first thing I love to do in those kind of discussions, regardless of who came up with it, is to say, what is the simplest thing we could do to test some of that to see if it resonates at all? 
um, you know, maybe maybe it's like we're doing a webinar and we'll like throw a crazy slide up with like what it looks like and see if the people in the webinar go like gaga for it. Um, or maybe like you have a blog and you can throw a blog post up about it or something just to see who it resonates with what happens. The other one is your persona. Um, if you know your personas, like I said, Kissmetrics, we figured out it was SaaS and e-commerce people. Or like it sounds like you guys, your sweet spot is like 25 to 100 employee companies. Um, when you know that, and if you know that persona really well, what you can start doing is thinking about line extensions where you say, what are other things that people that I know that persona so well do that they just don't associate with us yet? Um, that means that it's actually a more educated leap then where you say, oh, well, dude, SaaS totally cares about the revenue metrics. We should totally prototype a revenue report. Like those sorts of things are things maybe they didn't think about. Cause like, oh, I would have never thought. I thought only Zora would do that. But oh wait, you're an analytics tool. You totally should give us uh, a revenue report. It's uh, it's one of those things I struggle with. What are when I let's you know we'll do a little role play here. I come to you, sure. the CEO, and I'm like, here's this crazy idea. Yeah. Um, before you even get to the point of kind of investigating personas or or doing an experiment, is there any, you know, you know, I, I, in in fashion they call it the je ne sais quoi. Like, yeah. is there is there some characteristic that you've noticed that is common? So one thing that I've noticed, for instance, in those things that I that I think, um, it becomes clear that it's it's less of you know it's a a good a potentially good Hail Mary is if it's a an incremental move from the product you know like mm -hmm. one thing that I don't think I would probably experiment on or or really do a lot about is something that would that I know would require us to implement a number of things before we could get there so it's yes. like that's just too far like actually I'm working with a company right now and they want to consolidate brands and they're like we know we need to build this thing but we have like eight other big pieces that we got to move around and, you know, dares we decks, you know, chairs, we got to move around on the deck before we can even get there. So that's one thing that I would use to be yeah. like, you know, we're, we're, that's just too far off. We can't even think about that right now. So there's this awesome book I've read called, uh, where good ideas come from. And, uh, ironically, I read another book called so good. They can't ignore you that reference this as well. So it's very top of mind actually. Uh, and they talk about this thing called the adjacent possible. Uh, which is basically this idea that like all great ideas generally come with multi come are come up are created by p uh, multiple sorry great ideas come from multiple people around the same time because something happens in the world that makes it possible and interesting enough that it comes to their mind um, across multiple people around the world. So like the telephone, it was not just Alexander Graham Bell. There was a bunch of people that technology had just advanced enough that something like the telephone was possible. Or more recently, just look at how like we had a wave of social network companies because everybody came up with that. Um, and, and so I think that one of the things I always look for is thinking about is the wild idea actually like the adjacent possible where you say, ooh, that takes advantage of some trends. Like, oh, you know what? Things have moved to mobile and there isn't really anything that's taking advantage of that aspect. Or there's this other trend in SaaS that like we haven't taken advantage of yet. And so if it, you feel like you can attach it to some pieces you have and it's like, a leap, but you have one arm still holding on to something mm -hmm. grounded. Like that is when it's like, Ooh, that's a great idea. I didn't think of jumping in that direction, but it's not so far. I feel like I'm going to fall in a pit pit before I make it across. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, one thing I want to talk about before, before we uh, wrap things up is, you know, uh, one area we've talked a lot about, you know, talking to customers. We've talked a lot about surveying customers. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about business stakeholders who have their pie in the sky ideas. We've talked about engineers, yeah. uh, but there's one I think a important cohort that we're missing, which is customer support. Yeah. How, what are some of the practices that you have implemented that you uh, use to leverage support and customer development and product development? What are a couple of things that you know, tricks or tips or things that you, that other product uh, developers or maybe even engineers and support people can? pick up and run with uh, to help them build better products? Um, so I'd say a few things. Uh, the first and easiest one is if you're an early stage company, I think everyone should help with support. Um, at Kissmetrics for a while, we had a bunch of the engineers who would help out with support a couple hours a week. And that forced them to get to know more problems. And you know, at times an engineer would hear a problem and go, oh man, I could fix that. And they would literally jump in the code, make the change, deploy it, and email the customer and say, sorry you had that problem. Totally hear you. 
by the way, I fixed it, so you can just go and not deal with that anymore. Um, and so I think that's great. That's why I think like I totally support the belief that like you shouldn't have QA teams in small engineering teams because you want your engineers to build build good, clean code and not and have them clean up their own messes, so to speak. Um, I think another tool is just that like I would have calls or meetings um, regularly with our support team and just say, hey. What is common stuff you're hearing? If you hear the same thing like five or ten times, I want you to send it my way. And I want to talk about like why it's happening or what's, what's crashing. Um, I also then make sure that if we do something about something they say, I make sure I earmark to circle back and say, hey, I just want to let you know that like we fixed that problem. And that's not going to be an issue anymore. And I really appreciate your help on getting to the bottom of it. And then the last thing I like to do is actually teach the um, – I try to teach the support team a little bit of customer development. So I try to get them to think more about, instead of feature requests, I try to get them to think about customer problems. Because the more they can articulate the customer problems to me, the easier my job is to both pay attention to what they're saying and also act on it. Because very often then, I can help them do a little of my pattern matching for me, where they start to realize that like, hey, on the surface, these four or five customer support requests or 50 requests are very different, but they're actually all talking about a very similar problem. Jason, you should take a deeper look in this area. And so teaching them things like the five whys root cause analysis method and just basic things around like, you know, asking them to try to get beyond features and ask them like, what problem are you having? What is going on on the job when you're trying to do that? Getting them to ask those kinds of questions for me is hugely powerful. Yeah, we we have done similar training. Uh, Some of the things that we've done um, uh, is that if someone emails into support and Mm -hmm. it's amazing to me, like we have like, you know, settings area and you can go totally self cancel if you want and all that stuff. And, but people Mm -hmm. still email in and be like, Hey, can you cancel my account? And, Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, we've trained, we've trained the support people, like make sure you send out the exit survey with that, you know, and all, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we, you know, do ask them to ask like root problems. Um, uh, we've also done some things, where we've trained the support staff on some of our uh, um, metrics tools. So like trace view and we also use caliper on the front end where they can actually go and do user level debugging and say things like, yeah, I know that. Yeah. You're in Australia and right now for whatever reason, internet in Australia is slow. Sorry. Um, Mm -hmm. Which, which has been really helpful. Uh, By the way, those that are listening, the five whys that Jason mentioned is, is a, is a, is it basically a, a tool that you would use to, like you said, to get root cause, which is the, you ask like, why did this happen? And then somebody will say, well, it happened because of X, Y, and Z. And then you'd say, well, why did X happen? Why did Y happen? And why did Z happen? And the idea is by the time you get to the fifth Y, W-H-Y, uh, you've got the root cause of whatever actually caused that thing to fail. Uh, we use that at Quick Left. We do that every week in our management uh, wrap up where we pick a problem that it's kind of top of everybody's mind for the last week. And we do five wise. It's a, it's, it's a really, it works really well. Uh, well, Jason, that's uh that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, if you could leave us with one, your number one rule, number one rule of doing product in SAS. What's the, the number one rule, everybody that does product in SAS, what's the one thing that they have to do all the time? Uh, if you don't talk to three customers every week, you're not doing your job. That's, that is the truth. That is the truth. Jason, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. Uh, look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon in the future. All right. Thanks for having me, Joe. Sprintly, a product by Quick Left, is an agile B2B SaaS application tool created to power a more productive relationship between development teams and their management. By designing Sprintly to be more transparent, flexible, and usable than competitive products, cross-functional teams can reliably deliver higher quality software products. Visit Sprintly at sprint.ly.